This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's Election Day, and ballots must be taken to an official drop-off location by 7 p.m. to be counted. Getting people to actually vote is an ongoing challenge. That's despite hotly debated issues like Proposition 112, the oil and gas setback measure, and the chance to choose a new governor. Today, CPR's election podcast, Purplish, takes a closer look at why people don't vote and what it would take to get them to. Here's host Sam Brash and Purplish. Explain to your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, they do have to get out and vote and it they will... They say sentiment without action is the ruin of the soul. This is why we vote. Hi, I'm an actual doctor. Voting is shown to relieve the painful symptoms of civic constipation and electile dysfunction in the voting populace. This week, we're going to look at what works, what actually gets people to submit a ballot. And we're going to start at a rock concert. Michael Elizabeth Sackis, you're our reporter for this episode. And we were both uh, there at this show in southwest Denver. Yeah, it featured hometown heroes Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. And it was one of those get-out-the-vote concerts. Ever since MTV started working with Rock the Vote in the 90s, this has become one of those go-to ways for all kinds of political groups to try and turn out young voters. And this concert, it, it definitely had an agenda. Yeah, it was organized by Students Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and they were formed after the Parkland Massacre. And lots of students spoke on stage. Will you fight with me? Say yes. Yes! Will you vote in the midterms? Yes! Thank you! And we wanted to check this out mostly to see what kind of people would show up. Would it be people who already planned on voting or, or would it be non-voters too? Right. And we found the audience was mostly made up of committed voters or intermittent voters, people who were at least engaged at some point in the electoral process. Um, I voted in the last election. I'm going to be voting when it comes up again. Midterms have been kind of hit and miss for me, but most of the time just presidential elections. If nobody votes, then we don't have our say. And it defeats the purpose of a democracy. Voting is the way to make the difference. So your your opinion, your views matter. They count. So we did meet one guy, though, who said he'd only voted once. Uh, honestly, I haven't been the biggest proponent of voting uh, so far in my life. I voted to legalize marijuana when we were in college. <laughs> but his friend said she is a voter and that it's really important to her to vote. So I asked her what could she say to her friend right now to get him to vote. I'm that person. Stop being lazy! <laughs> That's me. Honestly, I think it's like laziness. Sports centers on. <laughs> Can't go out and vote. <laughs> And she wasn't the only one yelling at him. I mean, that was the whole message of the concert. When you don't vote because there's no good candidate, because you don't think your vote matters, or you are just too damn lazy to get out of your house and fulfill your civic duty, you are a part of the problem. The point was really to get people off their butts. But I don't really know, Sam. I didn't feel like this was an event aimed at getting people who've never voted to vote. 
It felt like it was really more about inspiring people who were more like on the fence. And of course, it was about turning out voters who are going to support stricter gun control. Yeah, I I totally agree. And, And here's something we should note before we go any further. Colorado is really good at voter turnout. 70% of eligible Coloradans voted in the last election, putting us fourth in the country. But that still means 30% of people here did not vote in 2016. So this episode, we're going to tackle one question. If it's not rock concerts, what could get those people to vote? Michael, here's one question I have. When it comes to this goal of getting non-voters to vote, a a lot of what we hear about the problem is is access, that people would vote if registering was easier, if voting was easier, and if staying on the voter rolls was easier. But, But Colorado does make it pretty easy, right? Yeah. So just a few years ago, lawmakers made it so every registered Colorado voter gets a ballot in the mail no matter what. We got to look at the ballots as they arrived at the post office on East 53rd in Denver. So for the Postal Service, election time is actually kind of a warm-up for the holidays. You can also register to vote up through the day of the election. And you're no longer assigned to a polling place. You can vote anywhere in your county. And all that stuff makes it one of the easiest states to cast a vote in. So in spite of all of that, we still have more than a quarter of people not voting. I mean, I guess that means it's not all about access. Well, no, but access does play a role. There's lots of factors that go into voter turnout. But we saw real data in this election that when you make it harder to vote, fewer people cast a ballot. Yeah, absolutely. Make it easy and people are going to turn out to at least a point. How much does it matter? So one recent analysis compared Mississippi, which they said is the hardest state to cast a ballot, to the easiest state. Is that us? Uh, It's Oregon. Ah. But we're number two. Okay. And this analysis says ease of voting accounted for 11 points of the difference between Oregon's turnout rate and Mississippi's in 2016. And that's pretty significant. Mm. But, I mean, it's clear making voting easier isn't the whole answer. I talked with a professor of political science at MIT, Dr. Adam Berinsky, and he studies states like Oregon that have made it really easy to vote. This notion that everyone would vote if we just let you drop a ballot in the mail, right? That the only thing that's preventing you from voting is the fact that it's hard physically to get yourself to the polls. I think it's just the wrong story. So what he says is that mail ballots, same-day registration, these policies mostly help likely voters cast a ballot. They aren't the key to turning out long-time non-voters. Hmm. So what do we know about people who really never or only rarely vote? People less likely to make it to the polls are Latinos, young people, people with lower levels of education and lower incomes. And these are nationwide trends that we also see play out in Colorado. Those are some of the demographics. But but why these groups? What makes them less likely to vote? So I spoke with Dr. Bridget King at Auburn University, and her book asks the same exact question that we're asking here right now. It's called Why Don't Americans Vote? My answer would be there are multiple reasons and there's no one solution to address them all. And what are some of the reasons that she gave? One reason is that people in these groups may feel alienated or discouraged by the process. Um, It could be because of the personal experience that they've had with um, government or some government office, or just the observations they've made over time with respect to politics and political activity. So apathy, disillusionment, feeling like it's not just hard, that, that it won't do any good anyway. 
Yeah, exactly. That feeling of why bother? My vote doesn't matter. Or the people in power are never going to represent me anyway. Or even this just isn't something people like me do. This is something marginalized groups can really internalize. And for King, education is a big part of the solution. And this might be my soapbox moment. If you think back to like elementary school, what we teach students is about the presidency. So we teach them about voting for president. But very little time is actually devoted to helping students understand the role of all the people who run our states and our local governments. And she added one more thing, that if these groups of people aren't being encouraged to vote, if candidates and groups aren't reaching out to them because maybe they've already been labeled as a low-chance voter, that just increases their likelihood of never voting. Okay, so that's really interesting. She thinks, like, get out the vote efforts, the kind of things we see from political parties and activists ahead of an election, those do really matter. Yeah, she thinks they're at least a part of the picture of getting people to vote, but she wishes they weren't generally so partisan or issue-driven and that they worked more to encourage lifelong voting. Hmm. She does think that certain get-out-the-vote efforts can help turn out those non-voters, though. Did you talk to any people who who run these sort of uh, get-out-the-vote campaigns in Colorado? I spoke with Jesse Mallory with Americans for Prosperity. They're a small government free market advocacy group. And he says what's most important is connecting with people where they are. And that could be at their front door or, he says, in a church or at school. You help them by giving them the tools to empower themselves. And that's a much different approach than somebody who's just like, hey, I just really need you to vote for this one person. I mean, it's just it's a completely different mindset. So Americans for Prosperity is a really well-funded group. They spend millions on their advocacy work and are a really powerful voice for conservative issues. And Mallory says when it comes to turning out voters that might support those causes, that it's really about creating relationships with people and not just at election time. What we don't do is just host an event, say, let's have a rally, and then we go home. You know, it's not what we do. We check in with them, we talk with them, and we stay in contact with them. Um, as I said earlier, it's that one-on-one contact. That's that's where you move the dial. Um, you know, it's transforming people one by one. And uh, that takes patience and it takes time. All right, so the point here is that the best way maybe to get non-voters to vote is not to talk to them once, but again and again and again, and to have a relationship with them. Right. And that's something I learned from Get Out the Vote researchers, that the key to getting a non-voter to vote is a personal connection with people in their lives or their community. It's really those people sitting down with them and talking with them who have the most power to inspire voting. And that kind of got me wondering, you know, what would that be like and what would that sound like? Okay, Michael, in your research, you found that maybe the best way to get non-voters to vote is to have someone they know, someone they're close to, sit down and ask them to vote, to, to make a direct appeal. Which gave us this idea. Uh, what if we actually listened in on people as they maybe talked to a loved one who didn't vote or hasn't voted for a while? So let's descend from the world of theory and statistics and, and see how this might actually work. Yeah, so we tracked down two pairs of people in Denver. And I do want to acknowledge something first. 
all four of these people happen to be on the left side of the political spectrum. And and that's not to say that all non-voters are dormant Democrats. A little over half do lean liberal, but another 30 percent are more conservative and another 20 percent have no real ideological lean. And that's according to a Pew study from 2014. OK, good point. Um, Which pair do you want to start with? So I think we should start with Genevieve and Jeremy. My name is well, oh, which last name do we use? <laughs> Probably our new. We just changed our last we name. We just changed getting our married. last name. Yeah, we combined ago. it. So their last names were Jeremy Kozak and Genevieve Heine, and they combined them into Kozny. Kozny. It means like leather or something in some foreign language. We just we had to Google it to make sure it wasn't Not something like a terrible. Curse word or like yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. They were a pretty cute couple. <laughs> yeah. And we met this newlywed couple in their apartment in Lodo in Denver. They're psychology grad students, and Jeremy voted for the first time in this last election. But before that, he'd never voted. I grew up in like a pretty middle class suburban home, religious home. My parents are both pretty conservative. And I, I think neither of them made a huge deal about Voting like they both voted and they would always vote and they'd always vote conservatively, but they just like wouldn't talk about many issues. I think a lot of it comes back down to like I was fine no matter what, and so like voting wouldn't really change like my experience a whole lot. Yeah, and I think I remember us specifically having those conversations too about like we have all of this privilege and likely like we're going to be okay. I think my identity as a woman is like a piece that divides us a little bit on that, and there are some ways that I don't feel okay. The reason that I decided to vote um, was because I was looking at all of the people in my life, right? And realizing that, like, all these people that I loved had experiences of, like, violence, like um, sexual violence specifically. I probably had known women and maybe some men in my life that had been victims before, but, like, just never been aware of it, never talked about it. And then gun violence, too. Mm -hmm. Um, It was always something that I heard happened, shootings happened, right? But I met people, right, who had had happened to. Me. (laughs) Yeah. Those were big things for me, especially on those two issues, which have both personally affected me. Like, my mom died when I was 14. She was shot um, the first time that I told you. I'm pretty sure it was on our first date. And so I told you about it, and I felt a little weird doing so on a first date because I'm like, this is not very lighthearted. And most people don't anticipate that she's going to have died in a shooting based on the things that they know about me. Um, yeah. To know that, like, my experience matters enough to you to, like, to do something about. Yeah. That's why it was, I think, upsetting hearing that you didn't vote because, like, like, these things matter. Like, yeah. this is how we stop this stuff um, by not putting people in office that, like, are going to continue to perpetuate the problem I, it, for, for me like the first time I ever connected it to politics was when one of the mass shootings happened mm-hmm. suddenly I wasn't just thinking like ah oh, man that's too bad like that sucks I was thinking like this is real these people's lives are changed like Genevieve's life was changed and like what what are we going to do to make this not happen again I'm not going to not do anything anymore will you continue to vote throughout our life together I I think I'm going to. I'm going to keep trying to know people who are affected by all of these issues and, like, noticing when I'm affected. And I think that's going to be the stuff that keeps motivating me. I don't don't seem, like, allowing myself to get complacent again. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll try not to tell you who to vote for anymore, but... Oh, you can. I'll do my own thing. Yeah, as you should. <laughs> That's the deal. That was Jeremy and Genevieve Kozny talking at their apartment in downtown Denver. And their ballots weren't hanging out on the counter or anywhere else. Both of them had already voted this year. Michael, that story of how Jeremy became a voter it seems like the perfect example of what you found in your reporting. People often don't vote until someone close to them gives them a reason to. Exactly. They have to see it as meaningful and important to the people around them. But I do think it's worth mentioning that Jeremy also fits these demographics of people who are already likely to be voters in Colorado. Right. He's white. He's young, but he's not super young. He's educated. Yeah, he's got all that. So in a lot of ways, Jeremy might have been right up against the line between being a non-voter and a voter anyway. It just took a little push for him to get over that barrier from a partner who really cared about whether or not he voted. Yeah, but I think for a lot of non-voters that the barrier can be so much higher like for this next gentleman we're going to hear from. My name is Sidney Quintana. I'm a Denver native. I'm 68 years old. So we visited Sydney in his home. It's a public housing unit in North Denver. And, and he's a Hickoria Apache, right? Yeah, and he has deep roots in New Mexico. But he grew up here. And you got in touch with him through his nephew. I did, Philip Cano. I am 31 years old and born in Denver, Colorado. And I used to do construction full-time, and now I, I am a... Uh, studio engineer. So Sydney is a non-voter, and Philip agreed to let us run microphones while he tried to convince his uncle to vote. So we're going to let this play out again, but to get them started, we asked Philip to talk about when he realized that his uncle did not vote. I've assumed he's not a voter probably most of my life. I mean, I feel like voting could probably, should be able to help more, but I feel that his generation and where he comes from uh, has lost that and the want and just the general need to vote, they don't have that anymore. They, they've lost that faith. We didn't lose it. We put it away. After so many years of this broken system, I choose to put it away. Are you, do you feel like you'd, there'd be any barriers for you to vote? Do you think that you could be able to vote freely? Do you Absolutely. think there's anything keeping you from voting? No. You know, there's is, no is, there's is, is this system from keeping you from voting? I don't drive my car when it's broken. The system's broken, and people need to acknowledge that. In the climate of Donald Trump, uh, you don't feel the need that it's more necessary to try to vote to just get this gone and moved on. We're never going to get this gone. That's, that's my opinion. Stupidity should be painful. So would you teach your grandsons to vote? I did. I have. Because I do think it's important. But while you guys are busy voting, we're busy pounding the pavement about the injustice, the inequality, the discrimination, the hatred. I'd rather fight that on a level that I'm familiar with, which is the streets of this city, uh, like this gentrification of this city. We were all affected by it. I mean, look at your community. How many minorities do you see in your community these days? Not a lot. You and your brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my mom and my dad. Right, exactly. And that was some place that we went to eat your sandwiches on Friday night. We, we could go listen to all the jazz we wanted. All the old little shops that were, were family-owned, they don't exist. And if they do, they're catering to white America. What about your, your local council person, you know, your... 
your locals who are right here dealing with the streets and the ones that are right here dealing with the gentrification. I've already done that. My community's already gone. My community does not exist here. There's nothing for me to fight for here anymore. I'm not real happy about that. What would you want? What, what's going what's gonna to pull you back to voting? What It'll never want? happen. Equal justice, fairness in the employment. When you tell me that there is somebody that you want to vote for and not lesser of two evils, I'll be standing right behind you too. I might even vote. Do you think that you can find a politician that is willing to fix this government and fire Congress? I mean, I agree that there's not anybody like that right now. Right now. I, I can't bring myself to not vote. Okay. I, can't, I, can't, I can't bring myself to say the same thing. I can't bring myself to put, away, to put it away yet. Yeah. I, I haven't I haven't got to that point. I still personally You're not my yeah, age. I, I, I personally still have faith that voting could still do something. At least show at least show that we're trying. You know, that that's that's how I feel. I can't bring myself to put away my vote yet. I'm glad that you guys have hope. Hope is important. Dreams are important. But I understand one thing. The left wing and the right wing is the same bird. That bird's been dead a long time. And if you can resurrect it, resurrect it. Because you're going to need it, not me. I'll be dead. And, uh, <laughs> I'll be dead before you're 40. <laughs> resurrect it because you're going to need it. Will I vote? No. That was Philip Cano speaking to his uncle, Sidney Quintana, at his home in North Denver. Michael, what do you take away from that interview? So I think for me, it blew up all of these stereotypes about non-voters. That they're lazy or apathetic or unintelligent. Yeah, or just uninterested. Some non-voters are going to be like Sydney. They've decided to put their vote away because they see voting as a sham. But they've made this choice to not be involved. Right. So so what would you say to people who still have hope in our electoral system and want to improve it? So, of course, I'm going to say go for it. Because I think one positive thing we really learned is that people are the best way to encourage voting. And some people are going to be like Sidney Quintana. But others still need someone in their life to make that appeal. But it also matters how you go about that. I think guilt probably isn't going to be your best tactic, and I think that's what a lot of people reach for. Saying voting is your duty, or if you don't vote, you can't complain later. Exactly. If you want someone to vote, I think you have to be there to teach them how it works, if that's what they need. And you have to explain to them why it matters to you and why maybe it should matter to them. You can't just talk at them. I think you have to really listen. If you want their voice to be included, I think you need to start by honoring that voice yourself. Okay, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks. This was fun. That's Sam Brash along with Michael Elizabeth Sackis and Purplish, CPR's election podcast. Tonight, listen for comprehensive election coverage on CPR News. And when we come back, what goes into calling a race as results come in? We pull back the curtain to find out what it takes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Tonight, you'll hear news outlets calling races. And who can forget this? A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. Stand by, stand by. Uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the too close to call column. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. Could 2000 ever happen again? We're going to lift the veil on calling elections. The Associated Press has been calling races since 1848, and it's now Jim Clark's job for the AP here in Colorado. Ryan Warner recently spoke with Jim about what goes into the process. Describe what it was like during the 2000 presidential election when the AP made the wrong call. What kind of what kind of backlash did the AP get? That was actually uh, uh, the fellow who made that call uh, for the AP was a guy named Kevin Walsh. He's since retired. He was my boss for years. Uh, The AP only made half a mistake. We called for Gore. Mm -hmm. And then Kevin saw some transposed numbers in the county around St. Petersburg and Tampa Bay and uncalled it. And we never called it again Ah. because it was too close. So we feel pretty good about that. We made a mistake, we pulled it back, and we never called it again because, as we know, it ended up with, what, 538 votes separating it? That's right. And, of course, it went through the courts as well. Of course, yes. Not resolved for many days. Uh, So to answer your question, could it happen again? Of course it could happen again. Have we learned lessons? Have we built in technological fixes? And have we taken a deep breath and thought about this every single election cycle? Oh, yes, we have. Well, maybe before we get to what has changed, you can walk us through the AP's process for election calling. It's really fascinating, and it's very much shoe leather. Mm -hmm. It is. So the Associated Press is the organization, the one news organization in the country that collects and distributes all the votes to other news organizations. The reason the AP does it is we are the not 
the not-for-profit news organization owned by all the other news organizations in the United States. And you don't want to replicate this because it's very expensive on the order of eight figures every election cycle. So what we do is we put stringers in every county, town, city, borough, parish. These are like freelancers. Yeah, they're freelancers. We pay them, you know, $100 for election night and $100 for a practice uh, a week before. And they are calling into vote collection centers. We have three that run in the country. And there's an army of people who are punching the numbers into our computer network. From the field, from what they're hearing from these stringers. Mm -hmm. From the stringers. And that gets distributed to AP bureaus and to people like me who need to have instant access to the numbers so we can call races. But it's also distributed to all the newspapers, all radio stations, television stations who are members of the AP. And so when you hear on election night, there's still a lot of votes out there. There's a lot of votes mm-hmm. still. Uh, the idea is that there is probably a, a freelancer, as we've said, who's sitting in a county mm-hmm. and has not yet reported those results because he or she hasn't gotten them yet, per, per, per chance. Right. And, and typically, uh, particularly in rural America, you will have counties that will, when the polls close, uh, start counting and give a wave of votes, and then another, and then another. And as you get deeper into the night, you begin to be able to build out a picture of what's going on. The tricky part comes at the very end of the night, when there are overseas ballots from military people, when there are, when there are provisional ballots. And a provisional ballot is, I went to the wrong polling place, please let me vote, I know it'll count. When there are absentees that are yet to be counted, that's when it gets hairy. Uh, and that's when you really have to know uh, you have to trust your, your technology and you have to trust your gut. I, I'm glad you say that it's a mix of, of gut and technology. I want to explore both of those. Mm-hmm. So for, first of all, the technology, there are some pretty sophisticated algorithms involved in this. It's not all gut. No, it's not. In fact, it's a lot less gut than it is technology for most races. Huh. Uh, the AP, uh, and I think some of the other major organizations have similar uh, technology that they use. Ours is a I think particularly impressive because what it does is it gives me a race calling screen or a, a outstanding vote model screen that tells me how many votes from how many different places the trailing candidate needs to pass the uh, leading candidate, what the likely percentage of votes outstanding is, where they're from. And it gives me three different views of a state. It gives me by county, by geostrata, in other words, Western Slope. Denver suburbs. And it also gives me by party strata. These are the collection of Republican counties. These are the collection of Democratic counties. And these are the middle of the road counties. And I imagine that it's at this point that the gut is matched with the technology. You have to know these areas, right? Uh, You know that El Paso County is very different from Boulder County. Mm -hmm. And so outstanding vote in those counties are, are going to be very different as well. That's right. And we have safeguards built into our technology. And this is one of the lessons of 2000. We have safeguards that say, okay, the past history of the vote in El Paso County is 60-40 Republican, let's say. Mm. If the vote comes in 50-50 or 60-40 Democratic, a flag goes up on the screen and it says, check these numbers. They might be transposed. They might be wrong. They might be transposed because it sounds like that was the error that led to the half wrong call in 2000. When you insert humans into into a system, you get mistakes and you have to anticipate those. How much do you feel um, the pressure to call a race quickly? 
I mean, are you facing competition then from other outlets? And how much does that drive a decision? Because I, I feel like that's where errors are introduced, when news organizations put fast over accurate. You know, at the AP, we've, we've long had a cliche, which is be first, but first be right. Right. You don't you don't want to rush and get it wrong. So I'm more than happy to get beaten on X race or Y race if I'm not comfortable with the numbers that I see. Mm -hmm. The deeper you get into the night, the better the better the AP is at this because of our network of, of stringers. We typically pass the state, the secretaries of state and the lieutenant governors who in various states who are tabulating this stuff. Because of our people on the ground. You know this before the election officials. Yeah. We typically know this before the election officials. We're talking with the APs, the Associated Press's vote caller, race caller for election night, Jim Clark. Uh, you also do exit polling, don't you? We do. I have been curious how exit polling, particularly in Colorado, has changed, if at all, given that we are an all-male election. Oh, th this is a fascinating topic to me. You're really letting me geek out here. This is great. <laughs> well, I suspect there are many listening who will geek out with us. So uh, we determined after 2016 that exit polling nationwide was broken. And say what exit polling is. So, so exit, exit polling is literally a uh, a person standing outside a polling place with a clipboard and a list of questions asking voters as they leave, would you like to take this exit poll? And it's less about numbers and it's more about what feeling, sentiment. Well, it's about numbers. Who did you vote for? What issues drove you? Uh -huh. So the the exit the traditional exit pollings produce a number that gives you a guess at uh, who's, who won the state and why they won the state. In Colorado, because it's all male, uh, an all-male ballot, yeah. we a couple of years ago switched to a traditional telephone poll in the uh, 96 hours before polls closed. And it has proven much more accurate. In, in 2016, for instance... The last wave of exit polling that I was given had Hillary Clinton winning by about 4.5, and she won by about 4.5. It was spot on. On the other hand, in 2006, when I was the bureau chief up in Montana, the exit poll for the U.S. Senate race where John Tester beat Conrad Burns, yeah. the best number I had was Tester winning by seven percentage points. He won by like three-tenths of a percentage point. And that's because exit polling has a, uh, a liberal bias. And here's why. When conservatives or people who lean right – walk out of a polling place and see somebody holding a clipboard with the AP's emblem on it and CBS and NBC and CNN, they turn around. They don't want any part of that. Uh, so more Democrats or we'll, we'll liberal-leaning folks will participate. Will participate. Yeah. Thanks for geeking out with us. Sure. Really appreciate it. Ryan Warner speaking with Jim Clark last month on Colorado Matters. Jim is the AP's Central Regional Director. He's been calling Colorado's election races for the AP for more than a decade. The Pittsburgh shootings have renewed calls for people of different faiths to find common ground. But what if we're actually allergic to our differences? It's an idea Sarah Pesson has spent a lot of time thinking about. She's director and interfaith chair of the Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Denver. She has a new project called Hate and Protect. One of its goals is to make interfaith work more uncomfortable. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you first explain this allergy to difference? What exactly does that mean? 
Okay, so an allergy to difference, I sometimes like to use a very counterintuitive example of the classic interfaith panel. The classic interfaith panel is usually seen as the antidote to any kinds of allergy to difference, like, you know, the Jew, the Muslim, and the Christian are brought in to talk about hospitality, charity, something in their religious tradition. Um, And just to be clear, I've participated in these panels. I think they're very, very important. Here's the problem. It's usually the Jew and the Muslim who are tacitly expected to keep talking until you're enough like me for me to feel comfortable. Keep talking until I understand elements of Judaism that sound enough to me like what I'm familiar with so that I can rest assured. And that is an allergy to difference. We're not comfortable sitting with the otherness of the other, and we want them to talk until they're me. And what's the problem with that? How does that manifest itself? So one of the problems is that from the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas, who is a 20th century uh, post-Holocaust Jewish philosopher, where I get this idea of allergy to difference, Emmanuel Levinas worries that this desire, Pac-Man desire, to actually absorb everything into myself is unfortunately at the root of a lot of kinds of violent tendencies that we have in ourselves and that manifest into the world. Look, Levinas doesn't think that the average good-hearted person who's going to an interfaith panel is secretly going to then become a racist or something like this. But he does worry that even within the best of us, there is this seed of something quite violent, something that speaks to, I demand that things be more like me. The question of why that's bad, I hope that we can all like just sit with it and think about why it's bad. Just even in that example, in an interfaith panel, if someone leaves understanding more about Islam, that's good. And there's many important good things that come from that. But in my project, I also believe that we add something to that work if we can ask ourselves in our best moments of attempting to learn more about Islam, am I secretly demanding that my neighbor justify herself to me enough that I can get my hands and arms around it so that I can embrace her? What would be a better and deeper way of connecting to each other that's um, not allergic to difference? Yeah. So one of the ways that would manifest is, for example, in the civic space, if what we're saying is, I'll protect you as long as I understand that you're similar enough to me to make that my responsibility. The alternative is, and this is part of my project, that roots the civic mood in a responsibility that is beyond simply understanding the other person well enough to make you feel comfortable. You use the term protect. How do you define that in this context? In my project uh, that I call Hate and Protect, that's sort of a way to say that we are responsible to protect even the ones whom we hate. 
Um, and let me just say a quick caveat. I don't mean that we should be working closely with Nazis. That That's not actually what I mean. What I mean, though, is to use less extreme examples. When I say hate, it's any kind of negative, visceral reaction. And I think in our current political environment, we have deep-seated, visceral, negative feelings to those on the other side. So let's just use like the average person on the right and left right now, the average, let's say, a Trump supporter and a Trump opponent. They're both generally good people, but there's some serious disagreements here. Maybe it's two different folks from different religious backgrounds, and one of them has dramatically different views about women's rights or about abortion rights. So when you feel that negative reaction to the other person, our current civic formula has two options. It's either rancor or rainbows. I'm either going to hate this person and then not use the term hate, depending on your background, and just feel super negative towards their beliefs or whatever you want to say. Let's just call that rancor. Or the solution is going to be, I need to become friends with this person. My project is carving out this third alternative, which is called hate and protect, which is a different kind of civic mood. And I can I also use the term responsibility not friendship, where the goal is to be and feel responsible for your neighbor without feeling that you need to become friends with them. So what might you say or do to get to that place where we can both be repelled by someone, but at the same time feel the responsibility to protect them? I think that it's not even so much what one might say as much as how one might comport oneself when one gets out of bed in the morning. If when I get up in the morning, I have a sense of how much of my day is spent honoring people for the very fact that they are another person who stands before me versus how much of my day is spent trying to understand and justify whether I'm responsible for them to the extent that they're just like me. You know, this reminds me a little bit of complaints about the PC culture, that perhaps by behaving a certain way or having to use certain language, it covers up some underlying feelings. Absolutely. So one of the minuses of this sort of current dual civic space, rancor or rainbows, I either hate you or I'm going to be friends with you, is that it leads us in our best moments of civic awareness to try to become friends with people, which often is an impossible task and involves us pushing down all kinds of very real emotions and very real discomforts. And we believe that we need to do that because currently the other alternative is hate or just be really, really not in a good place with. So what's an example of that where you might tamp down on a real feeling because you think you should be friends with someone? I've reflected recently on the 60-minute segment that Oprah Winfrey did. Those are those two 60-minute segments where she had people from different political backgrounds come together. I should say CPR did a similar thing with our series Breaking Bread, where we invited people with different political beliefs to have a meal together. So good. So I'm going to say CPR and Oprah uh, are an excellent example. Um, and again, I love Oprah and I love CPR. So here's the reason I pick on it is because it's illustrative of the best that we currently have have available in the civic space. And that is to say, wow, 
I'm really not comfortable with this Trump supporter, uh, with this with this person who has very different religious beliefs than me. I need to be a better person, so I have to break bread with them. I need to go out, in the case of Oprah Winfrey's segments, to a hockey game with this person who makes me deeply uncomfortable, who 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 viscerally angers me, who makes me feel not good. So what the segment that you do is predicated on and what the two segments that Oprah did is predicated on is actually predicated on some kind of a visceral hate that's never named. But the whole miraculousness and wonderfulness of the arc is that there's an arc. We end up breaking bread but actually we wanted to kill each other a minute ago, right? So we don't emphasize that first, the, the sort of the visceral disgust that we started with, but that's what makes those arcs such a grab because people get that. So in some way, you're advocating for conversations where we bring up our deepest, most visceral feelings of anger and disgust about the other? Not necessarily, and I don't think so. What I mean is we are not, on my civic project, we are not aiming to relieve you of that feeling of visceral distrust. Rather, we are seeking to have all of us creatively come together to figure out how do we live with a visceral feeling of distrust and yet understand and take into ourselves that we are responsible for this neighbor anyway. If there's a fire next door and this is your neighbor, it is your responsibility to help that person. Now, I would argue that many already feel that way, that they can be disgusted by their neighbor's views, but still feel a human responsibility to take care of them. I agree with you that probably many people in the case of that example of like a fire that they would help regardless of who was in there. But what are the day-to-day civic examples about what it means to recognize that your neighbor actually supports political views that are the opposite of yours? What do you tell your children about them? What do you hope for them in terms of thinking about their futures? Do you secretly hope that they simply become you? What are the outcomes of the kinds of small feelings that I just described to the extent, for example, that many of us secretly hope that our neighbors simply convert, as it were, to our views? I have a very deep sense, and this is part of what my research is looking at, that that actually leads to some negative outcomes, or to put it in a different way, it prevents certain kinds of creative civic solutions that we would actually have access to if we sunk more into this mood of this, I am responsible even for the ones whom I hate. I strongly believe that once we sink into that mood, it has creative openings for civic interventions that we currently don't even think about. So the million-dollar question of how to move forward with this idea is still not clear to you. You don't yet have this real-life solution for how to get to this place. Exactly. I I think about it, it's as if um, part of my research is discovering a new dimension, right? So to me, we currently have two civic moods. I either hate you or I become your friend. I'm introducing this third alternative, which is kind of like a different dimension to the way we think about ourselves and what it might be to live in the world. And so let's say if I were a scientist and I discovered a new dimension, um, I would very hopefully not have a lot of answers about what, for example, the cars in that new dimension should be built like, or what should, you know, will yeast work in the baking in the same way in that new dimension? I have no idea. So as a scientist who discovers a new dimension, it would then be, I would love to talk 
to bakers and experts in biochemistry to understand what are different things we might be able to do with yeast in that new dimension. And I might want to talk to people who work on, you know, all kinds of science and, and engineering of cars and say, what should new cars look like in this new dimension? I feel very strongly that there's a lot of creative interventions that can happen from sinking into this space of I am responsible for you, even if I never want you in my house. And I am very eager in this stage of my project to have more folks, and in particular, religious, civic, creative types, that's pretty much anyone and everyone, to sort of Work with me and say, okay, Sarah, we're not sure about this new dimension, but we're going to sit with it for a bit. And here are some of the things that it made us think. I have some ideas about it, but I'm actually much more eager to hear if people would sit with it and come up with things that I could never come up with. Because, again, I only I'm not the person who's the artist and I'm not the person who's the political activist and I'm not the person who's a religious leader, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah, thanks for sharing these ideas with us. Thank you. Sarah Pesson is director and interfaith chair at the Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Denver. We've been talking about her new project, Hate and Protect. Finally, on this election day, a preview of tonight's coverage from CPR News. Ryan Warner and Megan Verlee will be live starting at 7 p.m. just as polls close in Colorado. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, Andrea. What can we expect this evening? Well, this is obviously a huge election in Colorado. You've got the governor's race, control of the legislature at stake and some ballot measures that could really transform this state. And so on air, we'll pick up special coverage from NPR at 6 And then, as you mentioned, Andrea, a special from CPR News starting at 7. It'll be the most thorough election night coverage CPR has ever put on the air. As a part of that, I'll be joining Ryan with live results from here in Colorado. And we'll be tracking the national picture with the political junkie, that is Ken Rudin, formerly of NPR. We'll have CPR reporters all over at the Democratic and Republican watch parties, watching results with backers and opponents of the big ballot measures all over the place, bringing up-to-date coverage right to the air. And we're also joined by two smart political analysts who'll help us put the results into context, help us understand voter trends. We'll also bring you interviews and speeches from the winning candidates and where there are upsets, perhaps the losing candidates as well. So we're talking comprehensive reporting on the radio, but also equally thorough reporting online. You'll be able to see results in real time up and down the ballot. And on our social media channels, we will have lots of photos, videos and insight about the election all through the day. So definitely follow us right away at News CPR so that you don't miss any of that. It's on Twitter and CPR.org online. Okay, Megan, Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Ryan Warner and Megan Verlee. Special coverage from CPR News Election Night in Colorado starts at 6 p.m. tonight. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.